Good morning. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, my name's Mark, one of the pastors here at Door Creek, and um, you're catching us right in the middle of a series called Questioning Christianity, and we've been tackling some humdingers, um, really hard questions that often become the questions that keep us from becoming a, a Christ follower. And uh, today's question is, is equally difficult, very hard question. If God is love, why would he send someone to hell? I was talking to a friend who doesn't go to, to this church and told him what I was preaching. And I said, wow, preaching about hell? I said, yeah. I said, well, you don't hear that one very often. I'm thinking, yeah, there's a reason. This is a hard thing to talk about. I'd, I'd much rather be talking about heaven. You know, you could put the question the other way. You could say, if God is just and we're all sinners, why in the world would God send anyone to heaven? And it doesn't take long to realize that, you know, you can get in all kinds of controversies talking about heaven just as you can about hell. I don't know if you heard about the two churches that went at it over this whole doctrine of heaven. The Catholic Church one day put out a sign and it went like this, all dogs go to heaven. Literally across the street from them was the Presbyterian Church. And they wanted to correct their theology. And so they put it on their sign, only humans go to heaven. Read the Bible. Well, that was nice and kind. So then the Catholics quipped back. God loves all his creations, dogs included. The Presbyterians were quick to put their sign up. Dogs don't have souls. This is not open for debate. Thinking they'd won the day, they woke up the next day to find out the Catholics had a new sign up. Catholic dogs go to heaven. (laughs) Presbyterian dogs can talk to their pastor. (laughs) Next day, the Presbyterian said, Converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. The Catholics replied, Free dog souls with conversion. The Presbyterians back and forth went, Dogs are animals. There aren't any rocks in heaven either. And finally, the Catholics won the day by saying, All rocks go to heaven. Well, we aren't talking about heaven. We're actually talking about hell. And it's a hard one. It's a really hard one. I don't know what pictures conjure up in your mind when you think about hell. Is it, is it like that lake of fire? Is it like that horned devil? Is it this dark pit? Or, or is it a party? It's a great place. Can't wait to get there. The interesting thing is, Americans' belief in hell continues to diminish and get lower and lower and lower. Just... Six, seven years ago, surveys showed over 70% of people believed in a literal place called hell. This year, the uh, Pew Forum did a a survey of 35,000 Americans asking if they believed in hell. Only 59% believe in hell. it's, It's understandable. It's a hard one. It's a really hard one. And if it's true, I guess it has implications in how... We're living our life. There, there are eternal consequences, literally. And so you can see where people don't want to think about it and push it aside. And so we're going to pick it up. And it's a hard one as we pick it up. We realize, as Peter Kreef, the uh, philosopher from Boston College, says, it's probably the most difficult Christian doctrine. It's hard to defend. It's burdensome to believe. It's the quickest and easiest and first thing to be abandoned. The uh, critic's case against it seems very strong, he says, and the believer's duty to believe it, unbelievable.
bearable. And so for some of you that are listening to this message, maybe you're online or you're listening to this CD or DVD your friend gave you, um, maybe you're here this morning, I want you to understand that I understand how this could be a hard one. And I want you to know that what is your barrier is our burden. It's hard for us too. Lee Strobel, we've talked about some of his books as part of the resources out at the resource desk. In his book, The Case for Christ, he says it was exactly that for me as an atheist, a big-time barrier. And, and he said it was cosmic overkill. He said an automatic and unappealable sentence to an eternity of torture and torment. It's mandatory sentencing taken to an extreme. Everyone gets the same consequences regardless of their circumstances a place that makes Leavenworth look like Disneyland. And so it's an emotional subject. And I think the reason it's emotional is because it's personal. Not just about us, but the people that we know and have relationships with and love. And um, here's our tack as we kind of have this conversation today. Our tack is, well, let's go to the Bible. Because I, I have a feeling there's a lot of misconceptions that we have, both people who are looking at the teachings of Christ and trying to figure it out, and those who are followers of Christ and hold to it. I think it's easy to have misconceptions, so let's see what the Bible teaches. Then let's ask kind of a philosophic question, the why question. Why hell? Why does there need to be hell? What would happen if we tossed the doctrine, if you didn't have hell? Does it matter? And then finally... If it is a real awful place, how do you make sure that you don't end up there? Okay, so that's our tack. So grab a Bible and let's get into Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, page 741 in the Bible if you're using the one in the, the rack in front of you. Now, I, I'd just like to say for anybody who doesn't have a Bible and you're wanting to know more and more about what God is saying in his Bible, we always want to say, take that Bible if you don't have one. We'd love you to keep it as you try and investigate the claims of Christ. So here's a story that Jesus told. I think it's like some of the parables he told. It's, a, it's an imaginative story that he tells to teach us a lot of truths about hell. And it's the only story he tells about hell in, in this kind of a way. He says there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him Father Abraham. This is Abraham in the Old Testament, the father of faith. Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things, your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from 
Here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So this is Jesus' story on hell. Don't close your Bible. Because this section of Jesus' teaching begins in chapter 15. So I want you to see some pretty interesting things. Go back to chapter 15. Look at verse 1. You got it? In verse 1, who's he talking to? He's talking to tax collectors and sinners. And when he's talking to tax collectors and sinners, he tells three stories about heaven, not hell. He's telling it to these people so that they understand that, you know what God's like? He's like that shepherd who goes looking for his lost sheep. You know who God's like? He's like that lady who lost a coin and turns her whole house upside down just to find it. You know who God's like? He's like the father, the prodigal son, who has his arms open wide and actually goes running after him and restores him to a rightful place in his home. That's what God is like. And you know what heaven's like? Heaven's like a big party. The party's not in hell, Jesus says. The party's in heaven. And every time that somebody who's been lost is found and turns and starts a relationship with God through Christ, there is great rejoicing. And as he told those three stories, he wasn't just reminding the sinners who God was like and what heaven's like. But he was reminding the religious leaders in verse 2 of chapter 15 who were going, who in the world is this guy? A religious guy? who claims to be the Son of God, that hangs out with this scum? He he wanted those people to understand the true heart of God, that God delights to hang out and pursue people that are far from him. That's chapter 15. I don't know if you have that picture of God. It's interesting that the people who were really messed up, and I'm going to say probably knew they were messed up, probably if you ask them where you're going, they are the quickest to say, I think I'm going to hell. Did he talk to him about heaven? I don't know if you know what God's disposition is towards hell. Maybe you think God's doing this. I can't wait till you really mess up so bad and I can send you into the pit of hell where you fry forever. If if that's what you think God's like, you don't understand God. Because God tells us not only that he's established this place called hell, but how he feels about that place and how he feels about you and your eternal destiny. Some of us think that I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I've been reading about that God. Man, there seems to be a bunch of wrath and there seems to be a bunch of vengeance there and bloodshed there. I don't like, I like that New Testament God. Well, let me show you how it's consistent here in old and new regarding God's disposition about hell and how he feels about us moving in that direction. So here from the Old Testament. Ezekiel 18, verse 32. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn, and live. 
or from the New Testament. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. The promise Peter's referring to is Christ's promise to come back. He hasn't forgotten it. He's not slow. Rather, he says he's patient with you. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish. Peter's saying the reason Christ hasn't come back is he doesn't want people to die and suffer hell, but for everyone to come to repentance, to this turning away from life without God and a turning to Christ and living life with God. In fact, there's a verse that has a phrase repeated about eight different times throughout the Old Testament and even in the New where it talks about God as a God who is compassionate and a gracious God. He's, he's a God who's slow to anger. He's full or abounding in love and mercy and faithfulness. And so we need to understand when he's talking to the sinners, what does he tell them about? Three stories about what? Heaven. That's interesting. What's God's feeling about hell? He doesn't like it. Does he want us to go? No, he doesn't want us to go there. He doesn't want any to perish. He wants us to turn from that path and turn to him. So now in chapter 16, go go look at 16.1. Who's he talking to in 16.1? He's talking to his disciples. And he starts telling them about an unfaithful steward. And he's not only talking to his disciples. We learn in verse 14 that there's another group that's still listening in. It's the same guys back in 15, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law. That we find out that these guys are like that unfaithful steward. These guys are like the older brother, the prodigal son, who they didn't leave and run away from the father, but they were just as far as their prodigal brother, even though they were home. They're like the unfaithful steward. And they're like the, the ones that we see in the section right before verse 14 who want to serve two masters, God and money. And so in verse 14, we find out the Pharisees love money. And so it's in this context to his disciples and religious leaders that we can assume we're convinced they were going to heaven that he talked to them about what? About hell. And we just want to note that. Most of the time, if you're not familiar with the Bible, when the Bible talks about judgment and hell, the conversation is within the family of God. Not all the time, but most of the time. Most of the time. So, when we get in here, all of a sudden we see Jesus make a fundamental point in this story about the true nature of hell. And it's found in verse 26 with this little word, chasm. There's a lot of word pictures in the Bible for hell. There's the lake of fire. There's a fiery furnace. There's darkness. There's a pit. There's Gehenna, that garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. But here there's another picture, and it's the word chasm. And what it teaches us is the fundamental nature of of hell being a place of separation. Remember, it's a fixed chasm where people from here couldn't get to here, and people from here can't get to there. there. There is no second chance to move from hell to heaven. It's appointed for man once to die, the scripture says, Hebrews 9, 27, and then the judgment. And so when you think about hell, think about separation. Separation from what? Separation from God. And the implication is, if we're separated from God, and he's the giver of every good and perfect gift, then all that is good in life that we enjoy today won't be part of hell. It'll be the furthest thing from a party. 
Jesus who promises abundant life. He's not in hell. There is no abundance of life. Jesus, the one who offers us peace. There is no peace. There's only suffering, torment. So it's fundamentally a place of separation from God. And the implications of that are huge. That's not just mentioned here in the story of the rich man Lazarus, but Paul, when he teaches on hell, says the same thing in 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, and here it is, and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. In fact, this idea of separation, it's told throughout the New Testament as Jesus talks about heaven and hell. It's, it's a place of separation, the sheep from the goats. It's, it's the casting out in the outer darkness. It's the casting out into the flames of hell. And so the question is, why does the rich man end up in hell? Why does he end up separated from God? And when the Bible talks about that, it really frames it in interesting language. When the Bible talks about who's in heaven and who's in hell, it's all framed in the language of relationship. When we think about sin, it's really easy to think about sin is breaking God's law. And there's truth to that. But it's even bigger than that. Sin is breaking relationship with God so that when God's people Israel the Old Testament are breaking ranks with God he uses the metaphor of a marriage of adultery to talk about their sin and their idolatry remember that and so what we know is for those who have a relationship with God they end up in heaven enjoying a relationship with God forever and we know from from the scriptures that the consistent thing is those who do not know God end up eternally separated from God. So how do we know this guy doesn't know God? Well, it doesn't tell us that much about this guy, but Jesus tells us enough to know that he doesn't know God. What do we know about the rich man? We know he was rich. What do we know about what he did with his riches? He spent them on who? Himself. Every day he lived in what? Luxury. And every day when he went out of his gate, was he on a camel? Was he on foot? Was, was there a bunch of slaves I, I, pulling him through? I don't know. He went by whom? Lazarus. Did Lazarus walk to that gate? No. He was lame. He couldn't even walk there. Somebody had to put him there. Couldn't even get up to go to the bathroom. This guy who was just begging for a few crumbs. All he got from Lazarus was a little compassion maybe from his dogs who licked his sores. He didn't do squat to this man who had great need and he had the opportunity with his great wealth to do something about it. How do we know he didn't know God? Because God tells us what his heart's like for the people like Lazarus in this world. He says, my, my heart is close to the brokenhearted, so close that the scriptures say when you lend to the poor, you're actually giving to God. Proverbs nineteen seventeen. He shows that he didn't know God by the very fact 
that he was living life for himself. He was doing life without God in a big way. So he wasn't conscious about loving God with his whole heart or loving his neighbor as himself. It was all about me, all about him. And so this one who's just longing for a crumb, all he got was a few licks from Lazarus' dog. And so the question says, why would God send someone to hell? And I want to ask you this. Are you sure God sends people to hell? Now, what we want to ask is, how, how did this rich man get there? Did he get sent to hell against his will, screaming and kicking for mercy? Or is it possible that he ended up there because that's the path he chose? Let me suggest to you that hell is the destiny of those who daily choose to do life without God. Hell is the destiny of those who every day choose to, you know what, I don't don't need to do life with you, God. I'm going to do life on my own. And God says, look, you want to do life without me here on this earth? I'm going to let you do life without me forever, eternally separated from me. That's hell. And I want to suggest to you that maybe It's more like this. People choose hell rather than God sends them to hell. Lewis says, we don't get there kicking and screaming, begging for mercy. In his book, The Great Divorce, he says, the attitude of those going down the path of hell is this. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. I don't want to serve anybody. I'd rather reign in hell than do that. I, I don't know if you've heard that one, but I, I bet you've heard this one. I've heard it. You know what? I'd rather party in hell with my friends than live a day in eternity without them. Is it possible that actually this is all about what we choose? And the path to hell is paved with everyday decisions where we decide to do life without God. And he says, you know what? You can do that forever. If that's how you want to live, I'll let you live forever separated from me. Now, when there's separation, we know from this story there's also suffering. And the suffering in the scriptures is eternal suffering. We'll get to that in a moment. But we read that it's a place of torment, verse 23. He wants him to go save his brothers from this torment, verse 28. He's in agony, verse 24, 25, just pleading for Lazarus to come and, and ease the agony that he's in. We know that he wants Lazarus to be sent. If he can't come over here, send him back to my family. And six times in the Gospels, Jesus uses this phrase, that hell will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's an awful place. And I think to understand those tears, I'm not so sure if they're tears of regret. They, They may be. But when you chase down that phrase, gnashing of teeth in the Scriptures... It's always describing somebody who's angry at God or angry at God's people, someone who's mocking God, someone who's plotting evil against God. And and the, the picture here is not somebody who's regretting that they're here, but angry that they're there. And the tears may have more to do with the suffering of that place than anything else. Now, in this matter of eternal suffering, 
There's different takes on it. In our day, universal, universalism says, well, everybody's in. You can't get that teaching from the Scripture. There are those within Christianity which say, actually, there's, there's this time of suffering, and then there's, then there's annihilation, where we're annihilated, and it's annihilationism. And it doesn't go on forever. And yet, it's really hard to square with that verse we just saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, that talks about everlasting destruction. Or what Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 46, eternal punishment. Or in Mark 8, verse 49, 43 through 49, the eternal flames and fire of hell. And here's what I'm sure of. Jesus believed in hell, that it's a real place and it's real bad, and that you and I don't want to get near that place. And that he constantly was warning people out of his love and out of his mercy. He wants us to feel the horror, to smell it. That we wouldn't want to get even close to it. I was thinking about an experience I had when I was just out of college. My dad took... um, my two, brother, two brother-in-laws and I on a, on a rafting trip down the Colorado River. Oh, awesome trip. Nine days going down through the Grand Canyon on this big raft, going through these huge rapids. And, you know, there's an engine in the back of the rapids. So if it was a good rapids, he'd say, you want to do it again? Yeah, let's do it again. We'd just jump up the river and go down it again. Well, they kept telling us, well, there's going to be one fall that we'll never go back up and do again. It's called Lava Falls. It's really big. There's a 30-foot hole in the middle of Lava Falls, and I'm saying, man, I'm glad this raft is 35 feet, and when we go down Lava Falls, I'm going to be on the very back end of that thing. And they kept telling us about Lava Falls, and it, it was frightening what they were saying. And then the day came, today we're going to do Lava Falls. And we got an, a mile out, and, and they said, pulled off to a quiet spot, they said, can you hear that? That's Lava Falls. I'm going, oh my gosh, I can hear it. And it sounded so freaky and scary. And the closer we got, the louder it sounded. And I tell you what, if I got you a a mile out of hell and you heard it, you heard the screams of agony, the smell. I I, I don't know if flesh burns. I, I don't know what all the imagery means. But it would be visceral. That even from a mile out, you and I would have heaven scared into our hearts and we wouldn't want to get any closer. And, and there's, there's that sense in the scriptures where Jesus, he wants us to understand how horrible it is and how awful it is. The scriptures tells us it's a real place. It's a place of eternal separation. It's a place that we get to by our own choosing every day. It's a place of eternal suffering. So why why does it have to be? What what would happen if we we didn't have the doctrine of hell? So let me me just mention a few things. And and I'm really going to camp on this this truth that that I think that the character of God makes hell a necessity. Not just his character of justice, but but actually his, his love and and his righteousness and his faithfulness and his holiness, I actually think the character of God helps us understand why hell is necessary. Now, let me use justice as an as a early example here. 
God said the consequences for doing life without me back in the garden was, if you reject God as your king and ruler, if you doubt that he really is good and is holding back goodness, and if you reject his law and think there's a better way to live your life, then the consequences for that, life without me, is you're going to die. You're going to experience death. Physical death, where you're separated, your body from your soul that lives forever, and spiritual death, where you will be separated from my holy presence, and you won't enjoy the beauties of paradise, of living with me in a perfect place. And what happens in the story in Genesis chapter 3 is Adam and Eve sin, and they die, and they don't die. They're still walking around. In fact, they're hiding from Almighty God, because spiritual death has already entered in. And we know that because God says, you can't live with me anymore. You'll be consumed by my holiness. I'm casting you out of my presence. Death entered in. And because of God's justice, we know this, if there's no hell, God isn't true and faithful to his word. He isn't just. There isn't justice. It won't be served. It can't be served if no hell. God isn't holy. He isn't all-powerful. In fact, actually, evil wins. And that's not a God you and I would want to worship. A defeated God who made a feigned attempt to overcome evil but is overcome by evil. God's character points to the necessity of hell. On this whole matter of justice, let me suggest to you that because we're created in the image of God and because we live in a fallen world, that from the beginning of time, there has been a cry for justice. It's not just our kids who say, it's not fair. And we say, well, it's because life isn't fair. It's been going on from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, they got two kids. They're two sons, Cain and Abel. The first story about the first two kids in the Bible is that Cain got mad and he killed his brother. And God confronts Cain, and he says this very interesting phrase. He says, Cain, your brother Abel's blood has been crying out, and I've heard it. Does blood cry out? No, it doesn't. It's a figure of speech to say, I've heard his cry. The question is, what was Abel crying for? God, make it right. Make it right. Go to the very end of the story. The end of the story in Revelation where it's the end of time. There's another cry going out, this time by the people who've been martyred for their faith. They were killed because they trusted in God. And they say, how long is it going to be, O Lord? Their cry. Before you serve justice to those who wrongfully took our life. And I'd like to suggest that you and I live between those cries. And there's been cries going on ever since. And we know it. Some of us have lived long enough to know what it's like to be treated wrongly, even in the courts of our land, to know justice hasn't been served, and we long for it. It's going on right now in places like the Congo. It's going right now in the cities of our great world where there's 50 to 200 million street kids, orphans. They go, it's not fair. It's not fair that I've got to fend for myself with no mom, no dad, and they're, and they're using me for sex trafficking and all other kinds of things. There's cries of justice going on right now in Zimbabwe as mothers hold their dying babies. You go, it's not right that a government would spend the money on themselves and not feed their own people. It's all over our world. And, and I'd like you to consider this, that the question that we're talking about today is so American. If God is loving, 
How could he send someone to hell? You know what? If you lived in most parts of the world, God's justice wouldn't be a stumbling part. You'd like that. You long for justice. I'll tell you what would be a stumbling block. The person who wiped out your family. If you heard that God could forgive him, that he would be merciful to him. You go, I don't get that. I, I can't get in. You want me to turn the other cheek? I can't embrace that. That is so offensive to me that God could forgive somebody who's done such wrong. It really is such an American kind of a question. Why hell? Because sin is awful. It has real consequences. We really are responsible for our actions, not just at work, not just at home, not just in our community, not just according to the laws of this land. But if it's true in the world that we live in, why would it not be true in our relationships with God and in his world? Our actions really matter. Someone's saying, but why why can't God just be loving? Well, Well, you're asking now to create a God. You realize what you're doing when you're trying to make God and who you want him to be is, is you're now the maker. Well, we can't make God. He reveals who he is and he says, I'm loving, but I'm also just. And you can't pull it out and still have God. You don't have God. And here's a wild thing to think about, that actually the doctrine of hell points to the love of God. You go, that's crazy. I don't think it is. If hell is the consequence of someone who's freely chosen to do life without God, then we know there actually is a trail that leads back to a loving God who didn't create us as robots, and even though he created us for him, he didn't force us into the relationship. And the fact that we could end up in hell on our own choice actually points to a God who loves us. And I think there's another way. The doctrine of hell points to the love of God. And it's when you put the cross in the middle of the question. Because it's Jesus Christ that makes sense out of this question that seems to be pulling two things that seem so far at opposite. It could never come together that God's love and his justice actually meet. They kiss at the cross. And it's at the cross that we understand God's love. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a demonstration of his love. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for every murder, for every rape, for every lie, for every act of adultery, every act of violence, every theft, every act of coveting, of gluttony, of idolatry, and all the things that we didn't do that we were supposed to do. He suffered hell on the cross. And I'm not just speaking poetically. He experienced hell. How do we know that? Because of what Jesus said. Remember what he said in the last words on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken? What is that word about? Why have you turned your back? Why is there separation? When Jesus prayed that the cup would be removed the night before, what was the cup he was worried about? The cup of wrath being poured out on him that was rightfully to be ours. And he was so so distraught over that because he knew he was going to suffer separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered hell 
for you and me that we wouldn't have to. But we also know he took on God's wrath. All of it. Romans 3.25 tells us this very thing. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger. It's the word propitiation. He turns away God's anger that was aimed at us and he brings it all full force on himself so that we're not under God's wrath if we're trusting in Christ. We're made right with God. How? When we believe that Jesus shed his blood, sacrificing his life for us. God was being entirely fair and just when he did not punish those who sinned in former times. And he's entirely fair and just in this present time when he declares sinners to be right in his sight because they believe in him. And I'm hoping that maybe in a strange way, God is all of a sudden changing the question. And you walked in here going, yeah, how could a loving God do that? And and now maybe the question's, why would a God who's loving send his only son, and why would he let him suffer hell, the one who was innocent and didn't deserve it? You understand it's because he really loves you. He really loves you. And you've been thinking about this notion of hell, and it's always brought you to God hates you. Well, let me show you how that's not true at all. It's not true at all. This week, he went to the doc, and he says to you, man, Charlie, you put on 40 pounds since last year's physical. Do you know your blood pressure's off the charts? So is your cholesterol. Tell me about your job. Man, you are stressed. You're a workaholic. And Charlie, if you don't stop the way you're living, you're going to what? You're going to die. Your wife's going to be a widow. Your kids aren't going to have a dad. You need a wake-up call and a change of living or you're going to die. You walk out of that. Pretty shocking. You weren't expecting it. I mean, harsh words. You walk out. Do you say, that guy hates me. I know that's why he said it. He's got a problem with me. I'm fine. He just, he's having a bad day. He hates me. Is that what's going on? Let me play it out. 10, 20, 30 years from now, you made the changes. You heard the wake-up call. Now you're thinking about that doctor's visit. What do you think about it? You go, I'm so glad. He said the hard things. And I know he didn't hate me. He cared about me. Is it possible? You didn't even know it. You're you're driving down the car and you're listening to this and all of a sudden you go, I I didn't know I was going to have a physical with God, but I'm having a spiritual physical. God's pulled me into his examination room and he's talking to me about the way I'm living and I see that I'm living my life without God and I see how these everyday decisions are putting me on a path to eternal separation from him. Is it possible that out of his love, he's given you a wake-up call? And how many wake-up calls does he need to give you? It's time. It's time 
to say, yeah, that's right. I've been doing life without you, and I'm sorry, God. And I made a mess in my life. And you don't have to tell me where it's going because I already know where it is, and it's bad. And I need a change. I desperately need a change. And I believe it's through Christ, and I believe he died for my sins, and I believe he turned away your wrath, and I can experience a relationship with you. Now, help me. As this, as this new adventure with you begins. Help me know what it means to live life every day choosing you. And it's as simple as just telling God what we're just talking about right here. Is that where you're at today? Or maybe you're like the disciples and, and the, the religious leaders and you needed to hear the warning because you've been comfortable. Maybe you're comfortable because you think going to church makes you a Christian. Lends you into, into heaven. Maybe you think uh, a lot of things that maybe you did in the long past it gives you assurance that you're going there. And, and all of a sudden, God's needling you and he's, he's maybe bringing forth some Lazaruses in your life that you've been walking by. Maybe he's having you not look at a decision you made 10 years ago, but the decisions you made this past week. And God in his grace is saying, This is what it means to live with me every day. Not living for yourself, but living for me and for others. And you know, if we're living with God, then our heart's got to be broken like God's for the lost. And look, I'm just like you. This is something I don't like to think about. We bury our heads. We don't want to think about it. And yet you and I live with a lot of people. We've got people in our family, in our workplace, in our communities that don't know Christ. And I wonder if we care. I wonder if our heart breaks. I wonder if this teaching will just help us just get off our duffs and walk across the room and get out of the salt block mode and get in the shaker mode and be salt and light, believing what Jesus said, that I'm building my church and I'm crashing down the gates of hell and they're not strong enough to hold back the offensive of God's kingdom. And like my friend Steve Nelson used to say, I want to take as many people to heaven with me. And I hope this is a wake-up call to say the stakes are high and there's nothing given about the relationships we have. And they need to know about the hope of heaven. And we need to be part of shining for Christ and in so doing, be part of his offensive of liberating people from life without God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for Jesus, the one you sent who suffered hell so that we don't have to. We thank you for rescuing us, the image of like a brand snatched from the fire. That's us. We couldn't do it. It was all you're doing, your gracious doing. We thank you for for those who shared the truth with us. And forgive us, Lord, if we've forgotten that. Lord, for for those who are just hearing it and and their eyes are opened up, their hearts are receptive to it, grant them faith and new life in Christ. And we pray that they would flourish as they seek to do life with you every day. May they grow in this place. May they find a church, if they're not from this place, that will help them grow. And help your church here, Door Creek, to be part of your great rescue mission as we go out pointing people to Christ, the one who went through hell for us. In his name we pray, and until he comes, amen.